All right, well, if you'll go ahead and open up your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And if you would look with me at Genesis chapter 21, Genesis 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we invite you to take one from the seats in front of you. Uh, They are there for you to use. And uh, so we encourage you to have a Bible open. We want you to see uh, where we are getting the things that we uh, proclaim from this pulpit. Genesis 21. And we will read that together uh, in just a few moments. Two men walk down the narrow path to the celestial city. The one man's name was Christian. The other man's name was Hopeful. And Christian and Hopeful had been through many obstacles on their journey as they had sought to stay on that narrow road which would eventually lead them to paradise. But at this point in their journey, their feet were growing tired and sore. The road that they were on had become very rough and difficult to travel. They were weary. And it was at this point that alongside of the difficult narrow path that they were following, there ran a meadow called Byway Meadow. And unlike their path, the meadow looked uh, soft and easy to travel upon. What's more, the meadow seemed to be going in the same direction as their path. And so Christians suggested to Hopeful that that they leave the narrow path and move on to the soft meadow, for surely it would lead them to the same place, but with less difficulty. Hopeful had his doubts, but he chose to go along with Christian. What's more, they they met another man who was walking in this meadow, a a man whose name was Vain Confidence, and uh, he assured them that this meadow would indeed take them to the celestial city. And so together, the three men followed the meadow. The sun set, darkness overcame them. Christian and hopeful lost sight of their fellow traveler, and suddenly they heard him fall into a a deep pit in which he was dashed to pieces. And the rain began to fall and began to fall heavily. Thunder and lightning was around them, and they could no longer see the narrow path to the celestial city. What's more, the water began to rise around them, and their very lives were now in danger. They tried to go back the way they had come, but the rising waters would not let them. Christian and Hopeful uh, searched this way and that, trying to find a place of escape, and they, they finally found a shelter there in the midst of the meadow under which they could be dry and safe from the water outside. And they went into that shelter, and being very tired and worn out, they fell asleep. Well, the next morning, Christian and Hopeful were awakened by a giant. His name was Giant Despair, and it was his property that they were trespassing on. He took Christian and Hopeful back to his castle, and he threw them into his dungeon. 
And day after day after day, giant despair would come and beat these two men. He would beat them black and blue until they could barely move. He did not give them anything to eat or anything to drink. And with each passing day, their bodies weakened and their hearts failed. Finally, one day, the giant brought them three gifts. A rope, a knife, and poison. All the pain that they were feeling, all the torture that was coming day after day from giant despair, it could all end. If they would only take their lives, it would all be over. But if they did not, there would be no escape. Giant despair would beat them daily and deeply until they breathed their last. The giant even took them out of the dungeon on one occasion, out into the yard of the castle where he showed them the skulls and the bones of all the travelers to the celestial city who had wandered into his meadow and been captured and conquered by him. And then they were thrown back into the dungeon with no hope of escape and only two options before them. Live longer under the suffering of giant despair or end their lives. What would they do in a hopeless situation like this? We'll come back to John Bunyan's story from A Pilgrim's Progress in just a few moments. Right now, I want you to see another situation in which all appear to be hopeless. And it begins in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So we have a day that sets our context. And it is the day in which the baby Isaac was weaned. Now, friends, the day a child was weaned in the ancient world was a day of great celebration. For just like in certain places in our world today, it was common in these ancient times for children not to live, to see their second or third birthday. The first few years of life were very dangerous for babies. And so children were typically weaned at the age of two or three, and this period, this process in which the child was being weaned was known as being particularly dangerous, a particularly uh, difficult season for the child. And thus, when a child was successfully weaned, it was considered a real cause for rejoicing. And so, the setting here is that Isaac, the promised son through whom God was going to bring blessings, not only to Abraham, but to the world, this baby boy has been weaned. And a great celebratory feast is being held. Family and friends are all around. Servants are hustling back and forth. Lavish food, music, even dancing are probably all going on. And yet, Ishmael, the son of Abraham and his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, is here as well. He is now a teenage boy. And in verse 9, we see what happens. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, 
We all know that the hearts of human beings are deceitful and wicked, and we all know that teenagers can be capable of some pretty awful things. Well, that's what's happening here. In this case, this is not a, a, a kind of laughter that is joyful and, and pleasant and innocent. No, this is a, a malevolent mockery of the child Isaac. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that what is happening here is Ishmael persecuting Isaac, treating the child with disdain and with hostility. Just as Hagar once looked upon Sarah with contempt, now Hagar's son looks upon Sarah's son with contempt. Remember, God had told Hagar what the character of her son would be. God had told Hagar in Genesis 16 that Ishmael would be, quote, a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. Well, that prophetic word concerning the character of Ishmael is now beginning to be fulfilled in his teenage life. Now, we aren't told exactly what was happening. We are only told that it was this sort of malevolent mockery, this laughing. But whatever was going on here, Sarah saw it. And in verse 10, we read Sarah's response. Verse 10, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. There are two realities at play here. The first reality is that Hagar and Ishmael are slaves. They uh, don't picture slavery here probably as you know, pre-Civil War slavery here in the South, where we often think of it in its most extreme and abusive forms. Uh, that probably was not happening here. But Hagar and Ishmael are servants of this household. They do belong to Abraham, and they are not free. So we have the reality that, that Hagar and Ishmael are slaves, but we also have at play here the reality that Ishmael is the son of Abraham. And scholars tell us that legally he had a right to an inheritance from Abraham. And so Sarah, probably out of very impure motives, is telling her husband to set Hagar and Ishmael free, to send them away and out of servitude with the understanding that Ishmael would no longer have any claim on his father's possessions. Basically, Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael out of their lives. How does Abraham respond? Verse 11. Verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. You see, Abraham did not feel the same way Sarah did. Though God had revealed to Abraham again and again that Isaac would be his son, the son through whom he and the world would be blessed, this didn't change the fact that Abraham still had love for Ishmael. Unlike other fathers that we read about in the Scriptures who played favorites with their children and preferred certain sons over other sons, Abraham seems to have had a sincere and genuine love for both his sons. And that is why verses 12 and 13 
were so hard for Abraham to hear. Look at verses 12 and 13. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever else Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God tells Abraham not to be disheartened concerning Ishmael or Hagar. Which, by the way, the fact that he mentions not to be disheartened or displeased concerning Hagar shows that Abraham probably wasn't heartless towards Hagar either. Um, though she had only been something of a, of a concubine to him, and that only during a season of disobedience in his life, he still had compassion for her, care for her. And yet God tells Abraham to do as Sarah says, to send them away. And God tells Abraham to send them away for two reasons. Number one, through Isaac will his offspring be named. And number two, Ishmael will not be forgotten, but Ishmael will also be blessed as the father of a nation. In other words, God is telling Abraham, I have purposes that are at work here. I have a plan which I am unfolding here. And in order for my purposes and for my plans to be accomplished, here is what you must do. God has purposed that Abraham will be the father of many nations and that through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Yet, Ishmael will have a nation which comes from him. Ishmael's nation will not be the chosen nation. Ishmael's nation will not be the one from whom the Messiah will come. That will be through Isaac. That nation will be named Israel after Isaac's son Jacob, whom God would change his name to Israel. And so you see here, God is calling Abraham to do something for the sake of God's glory and His purposes in the world, that it seems to be hard for Abraham to do. Indeed, it may have been very heart-wrenching for him to say goodbye to his son. Yet God is sovereign over all. God has the right to demand this of Abraham. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are always wisest and best, and if we trust Him, we will submit to Him. And so, as hard as it was for Abraham, he does submit. Look at verse 14. You see verse 14? So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. I have three lessons this morning, and the first lesson we see right here, which is that sometimes trusting God means having to do very hard things. The first lesson we see in this passage is that sometimes trusting God means having to do very hard things. Think about Moses standing before Pharaoh, probably quaking in his boots, saying, Pharaoh, I have a message to deliver from God. Let my people go. Imagine Gideon going up against the vast Midianite army with only 300 men. He started out with 10,000 men. And God said, nope, not those, not those. God took them away and said, Gideon, you're going with 300 against that vast army of the Midianites. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
refusing to bow to the idol, trusting God that the consequences included a fiery furnace. We think of Daniel refusing to give up his daily times of prayer, even though the cost meant a lion's den. Trusting God can mean very difficult things. In this case, there was no enemy king. There was no enemy army. There's no fiery furnace. There's no lion's den. What made obeying so hard for Abraham was that it was breaking his heart. Was that it displeased him. And yet God told him not to be displeased, but to trust him and to do as he was told. You see, friends, the Christian life is not for wimps. The Christian life is for men and women of fortitude and strength, willing to take up their cross, willing to stick a knife in their own desires in order to do what God has called them to do, even when it hurts. The Christian life is not for wimps. And the Christian life is for wimps. Because it is for men and women who know that they don't have the fortitude. They don't have the strength to do the hard things that God calls them to do. So the Christian life is for men and women who know to cry out to Christ and to look to Christ to make them strong and to give them the strength to obey. You see, ultimately, the Christian life is for Christians, which are people who know that they don't have what it takes within themselves to do what's right. But they look to Jesus. They cry out to Him, believing His promises. They find all that they need to do the hard thing, even when it hurts. Hard things like ending a dating relationship with an unbeliever. Because God has told Christians not to be unequally yoked. Hard things like giving up a hobby that you have loved for so long because God has shown you that it is taking too much of your attention and your affection away from more important things. Trusting God can mean doing hard things like denying yourself certain conveniences, denying yourself certain possessions so that you might give to kingdom priorities. Talking about hard things like standing up to your friends and telling them that you will not be a part of something because you know that it is wrong. We could go on and on with a long list of hard things that God can require of us. Yet every hard thing that God calls us to do in this life will later be seen to have been worth it. We will look back from heaven's perspective and we will see how foolish we would have been had we not done what God called us to do. We will look back and we will thank God that He called us to do that difficult thing. We will bless Him and we will praise Him for that hard command that He brought into our lives. It may be that some of you in this room this morning are being confronted with the opportunity to do something that you know God wants you to do. And yet it's hard. And the question this morning is this. Do you trust God or not? Do you take Him at His word or not? Will you not surrender to His will? 
Well, you have to learn again the hard way, as I have many times, and probably you have many times, having to learn the hard way. In the end, His ways are best. That the difficulty of doing the hard thing will last for a season, but the result and the fruit is joy and peace. So the first lesson is this. Trusting God often means doing something very hard. Come with me to verses 15 and 16. Because here we find a sad and seemingly hopeless situation. When the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. We don't fully know how Hagar and Ishmael came into such a dire circumstance. Many think that they were headed back towards Hagar's hometown of Egypt and that somehow along the way they became lost. Whatever the circumstances, we know that they are traveling through the desert and they now have run out of provisions. It appears that Ishmael in particular has become dehydrated and is near death. And there is nothing that Hagar can do for him, for she has nothing to give him to drink. We are told that she put the child under a bush. Um, some people struggle with the idea of her placing her teenage child. Uh, the word in the Hebrew can also mean sent, that she sent him under the bush. So it could be that she simply sent him. It could be that he had grown so weak that she literally had to lift him and place him under the bush. The point is, he is about to die. And she could not stand to be near him as he died. And so she went a ways off. We're told a bow shot off so that she would not hear his moaning and groaning as he passed away. And she found a place to sit and she wept. The situation seems hopeless. Ishmael is dying. Hagar too will probably soon follow. Here's our second lesson. Listen carefully. God's promise is more certain than our assessment of our circumstances. Let me say it again. God's promise is more certain than our assessment of our circumstances. We assess the circumstances here. And what do they tell us? They tell us there's no hope. They tell us that all is lost, that Ishmael is about to die. Hagar sees no reason for anything but despair. And yet, what did God promise to her? Back in Genesis 16. Remember when Ishmael was still in Hagar's womb more than a decade ago, probably 14, 15 years ago, God had made a promise that through Ishmael, she would be the mother of a nation. We have just seen God promise to Abraham that Ishmael will become a nation. God had told Hagar that he would dwell against his kinsmen. That prophecy has not yet come to fulfillment. Thus, we have the Word of God declaring that Ishmael must still live. And we have our circumstances saying that there's no hope. He will die. Who do we trust? Our assessment of the circumstances or the promises of God? 
Passage after passage after biblical passage is written to tell us to walk by faith and not by sight. We are not as good at assessing circumstances as we often think we are. Over and over again, God steps into situations and brings about results we did not expect and did not foresee. What we think can happen or what we think might can come about is never as sure as what God has declared will happen in His Word. Friends, what does this mean for your life? What are the circumstances that may be causing you to doubt God's promises? Have you begun to think that maybe the Lord Jesus is not going to return? Have you begun to think that Christ's work of building His church will never reach completion? Have you begun to doubt God's promise that that there will be a day in which you will be made holy and your fight with sin will be done? Have you begun to think that Christ has abandoned you and that He's left you to face your trials alone? In other words, is giant despair beating you black and blue, leaving you feeling depressed and alone and as if there is no hope? Take your eyes off your circumstances and look to the Word of God. His Word proves true. Every time. Look at verses 17 and 18. His word proves true. Verses 17 and 18. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. We see here the angel of God, whom I have suggested before is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And he's here calling out to Hagar. And he asks her this great question. What what troubles you, Hagar? What kind of a question is that? Right? What do you mean what troubles me? My son is dying. I have no food, no water. I'm about to die. What do you mean what troubles me? With that question, Jesus is is gently rebuking her. Has she not trusted the promises? Does she not know that God is taking care of her? That He is near, that He has seen, that He hears? The angel of God informs her that God has heard the desperate cries of the dying boy and He will live to become the father of a nation as was promised. And now look at verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine 
What feelings must have flooded Hagar's heart when suddenly she looks and there before her is a well of water. We aren't told that God suddenly created this well. Rather, it is likely that in her despair and in her hopelessness, Hagar simply hadn't seen it. It had probably been there the whole time. Yet it was God through His sovereign power that caused her now to see what she needed and to be delivered. Which brings us to the third lesson. It's the one I've had the most fun thinking about this week. It's this. Deliverance is often closer than we think. Deliverance is often closer than we think. We are so prone to think that we are in such desperate straits, that our situation is so bad and so messed up that there could be no hope for us. And if there is some solution for us, it's going to be really difficult for it to come and meet me. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of work for this to be resolved. We don't see how close our deliverance really is. (laughs) How often do we despair and think there is no hope? No possible way that this situation can work for good. And then suddenly, surprisingly, it does. You ever worried about something for a long time and then it all just all of a sudden worked out in the end? And you thought, why did I worry all that time? What was I doing? How many Christians are being beaten black and blue by temptation and sin, thinking there's no way I will ever get away from these temptations and sins while the weapons that God has appointed for their deliverance, the Bible, prayer, Christian fellowship, are right there being neglected. The means of their deliverance against this sin or that temptation are right there as close as the Bible on their bookshelf, as close as their knees are to the ground, as close as the cell phone in their pocket where they can call their Christian brother or sister. These means that God has given to help them find freedom from that sin, to be released from that temptation are there, and yet in their deep depression they remain, being kicked around by sin, seeing no hope for deliverance. You ever been there? We want to cry out, look! God has provided all that you need to be delivered through Christ. No sin will come against you that He will not give you grace to overcome. Take advantage of all of these means of grace that He has given you. They were purchased by the blood of Christ. Why act? Like your deliverance is so far off. There is help right here. Yet often in the midst of being beaten, we cannot see how close our means of deliverance is. And so we remain hopeless. So here a Christian and hopeful in the dreary dungeon of the giant despair. And they are weak and weary. They are full of darkness and depression. They are regretting the day they took one step away from that narrow path and wandered into the meadow. There is no hope for escape. Their bodies are aching and more suffering is waiting on the horizon. 
The knife and the rope and the poison are sitting nearby, tempting them as an easy way to escape the pain. Christian considers ending it all. But Hopeful reminds Christian that they've been through tough times before. Maybe never like this, but tough times nevertheless. And God has always brought them through in the past. So rather than Christian taking his life, he and Hopeful come together and begin to pray together. And as they are praying, something surprising happens. Christian suddenly looks up amazed with himself. He can't, he can't believe this. He, he says, what are we doing locked in this dungeon of despair when I have a key right here? He says, I have a key called promise right here in my bosom that, that will set us free. See, friends, how many times have Christians lived in depression and despair when the key to set them free, the promises of God, was right there, hidden in their own hearts? Friends, the promises that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, that He will work all for our good, that He will finish what He has began in us, that He will take our mourning and turn our mourning into dancing. Have we not hidden those truths into our hearts that we might not sin against Him? These are the key for our deliverance in times of despair and hopelessness. They are closer to us than the well was to Hagar. Christian cannot believe that he's had the key the whole time. He pulls it out. He and Hopeful unlock the dungeon door and they watch it swing open. They run to the castle door and, and they try the same key of God's promises and sure enough, it opens and they come further out of the domain of giant despair. They run to the very edge of His property where there is yet one more gate to be unlocked. The giant comes running after them, but the gate door seems to be opening so slowly because sometimes coming out of despair is a gradual process. And yet it is opening, and it is opening more and more, and they are able to get a little further out of the giant's realm. And as he begins to come after them, the light begins to pierce him, and it knocks him to the ground. And they, through the key of God's promises, Escape the rim of giant despair. Before returning to the narrow path, Christian and Hopeful erect a sign outside the gate warning fellow pilgrims to the celestial city to stay out of this giant's domain. Brothers and sisters, how can you and I, as fellow pilgrims to heaven, avoid the despair of hopelessness and depression? And how can we get out of it when we fall into it? And the answer is what we see here in 21. Knowing that the Word of God proves true. Trusting God's promises more than our assessment of our own circumstances. Our deliverance is often closer than we realize. And so it is for any in this room this morning who are still under the judgment of God. You see, God is holy and perfect. 
And all humanity, by nature, rebels against him. Every man, woman, and child seeks to ignore God, fight against his commands. We all have this tendency to want to live as the God of our own lives. We want to be usurpers. We make ourselves guilty of treason. We want to overthrow God and be gods of our own lives. And so, though you know that God has declared certain things to be right and certain things to be wrong, you have often, every day in fact, chosen to rebel against His commands. Your heart is twisted. It has led you into all sorts of sins against God. Looking back over your life, you've been impatient, you've been arrogant, you've used your tongue to hurt other people, you've harbored terrible thoughts in your mind, you've been dishonest, you've been unloving, and all of these sins are exposed in the light of God's holiness. He sees each and every one of these sins, and every one of them is heinous in His sight. Every fiber of God's perfect being rejects in holy hatred the wickedness of your heart. Indeed, God has to restrain Himself this very moment from casting sinners into hell, the hell that He created as the place where He would display His righteous wrath against evil. The words of Jesus Christ, whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, if you're here and you are an unbelieving man, woman, or child, you live each day as a condemned man, as a condemned woman, condemned child. You have already been found guilty by the judge. Your sentence of eternal death has already been declared. All that awaits you now is the carrying out of your punishment. Eternal hell is in your future. This is the ultimate hopeless case. And yet deliverance is closer than you may realize. For God by His grace is giving you an opportunity to be pardoned. He has looked upon our case as sinners. He has seen our situation. He has had pity on us. He has loved us sinners with such an amazing love that He sent His one and only Son to die on the cross to bear the punishment for sinners like you and I. All who look to Christ are His and are safe. He has fully borne their punishment. Their sins are forgiven. Friends, this can be you. All that is required for you to be delivered from the most hopeless of situations is simply to look at the well that God has provided. The man, Jesus Christ, who has done everything necessary for you to be saved. In your heart of hearts, see Jesus there for you. Good, wise, perfect. See how foolish you are to to continue living your own life, your own way. See that being saved requires of you only one thing, and only one thing, that you surrender to Christ, that you embrace Him. 
Yes, being a Christian costs. You can no longer be the God of your own life. Jesus must be the master of your life for you to be saved. But friend, don't let that be an obstacle, for he is a better master of your life than you are. (laughs) You will find that he will lead you in better paths. You will find that he will care for you better than you've ever cared for yourself. He is a great master, the best you could ever know. Friends, what keeps you this moment from being saved? God doesn't require you to clean up your life first. He says just desire to be clean. He'll do the cleaning. Just come to Him knowing you need Him. Come with empty hands. Come knowing that you have nothing in and of yourselves to make you right with God. See that Jesus has been provided for you as all you need. And that if you call on Him and take Him as your Savior, take Him as your Lord, you will be His forever. You will have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. What's more, see that when you have believed on Christ and God has pardoned your crimes, He goes further than any human judge. For he then adopts you as his own child. He then makes you his very own. He loves you for Christ's sake. He promises to bless you and to bring you into his presence. He begins to take pleasure in you for Christ's sake. He takes joy in making you holy and causing you to be more loving and more kind and more courageous and more like his son. It is his joy to set his love and grace on you. The path of following Christ is not an easy one. I wouldn't have you think that it is. But Christ will be with you the whole way. He will bring you to the end safely. And you will find that there is no better place to be than in His grace and in His presence forever. And so I would call any in this room who are unbelievers to turn to Christ today in your heart and to rest upon Him. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest for your souls. Be baptized in His name. Profess Him publicly that way. Begin a new life of following Christ. May we all trust in our faithful God and His Word and not in our own assessment of our circumstances. Amen? Let's pray. And so now I would call all of us simply to think about what's been said. If anything has been said that is untrue, 